Lydia in the Doorway of Home On a steamy July late afternoon in 2001, Lydia Whirlwind Soldier, a Sachangu Lakota writer and an original founder of our Oak Lake Writer Society of Ocheti Shakawin, which is Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota writers, stood in the frame of a doorway in the Oak Lake Lodge. I had just been invited the previous year to apply to become a member of the society, and summer 2001 was my first annual retreat. Our tribal writers group meets every summer for one week near the little undeveloped Oak Lake in eastern South Dakota under cinematic skies. I had just parked on the grass outside and come in with my suitcase. I was choosing a bed in the bunk room. The bare bulb overhead glowed yellow and the heat lingered unseen and heavy like a ghost. Years later, I was told, a spirit indeed resides in that room. But in that early July evening, when I first arrived at Oak Lake, I felt only Lydia. Her fleshly presence at my back, I turned around. Did she speak, or did I feel her there first? The space between us seemed wide in the austere room that is not large. Lydia in the doorway did not enter. She stayed at a distance, a beautiful, powerful woman. She probably introduced herself, but mostly I remember her getting to the point. She placed between us soft, assertive words. Our culture is the best culture. Were they an offering or an admonition? I've never been sure. I don't remember if I understood the depth of her statement that day 20 years ago when I was just home from circling the planet. The lodge is down a winding two-lane country highway and the last leg down a gravel road in Brookings County, South Dakota. It's about 15 miles from South Dakota State University. The building is comprised of a rustic high-ceilinged main room with many tables for eating or writing, two single toilets, a couple rooms with bunk beds, and a kitchen for making communal meals. The kitchen reminds me of the kitchens in small uh, town church chapels, last remodeled and dishes bought in 1952. That summer of 2001, before beginning a PhD at the edge of the Pacific in Santa Cruz, California, I was in a space of contemplation about place and travel, life and death, spirits and journeys. For years, I came home at holidays and in summer for the dancing and drums and in the occasional hard spring for funerals. After my grandmother's died in the mid-1990s, I came home less often. I had been living away from South Dakota for 18 years in Minneapolis, Boston, Denver, and in Indonesia near Jakarta. But in that summer of 2001, I began again a yearly ritual of homecoming. After so much global travel, I wanted to sit quietly on solid, flat earth with other Ocheti Shakawin writers. I wanted to breathe in the sweet grass and cool evening air. I wanted to see midnight lights dance inside storm clouds. I wanted to inhale the smell of black earth lifted by hard rain. I came home in part for the love of my life. Prairie skies. I was a traveler born to travelers. Except for my great-grandmother who would chastise my mother, why do you have to be such a vagabond? I inherited the inclination to travel from my Dakota mom and perhaps if such things are heritable, from my white father, 
who had very little to do with raising me. They both traveled nonstop throughout my childhood on four and 18 wheels, respectively. I insert into the text here a poem that I published in a volume uh, back in, uh, I think it was 2000, in a poetry volume. It's called Ghosts on the Road. At dusk I speed by, and trees lope across the field like long-armed Sasquatch. A mist-bodied fox darts from the willowy grass and dissipates in my lights. Vaporous woman and man slowly are pacing away, near sleep on the road. Inevitably, I catch ghosts, tracking the breakdown, weaving amidst lines luminous that guide. I will not drive this night through, aside the steady moon eye. Do not discern road trackers from blood flesh deer in that flash of snapping open eyes on the earth world. Unaccustomed to glimpsing, spirit shifts in the waking, I wane at a vacancy, blinking, waver from the road. We'll make the last day only of dancing, mother time marking with eyes and feet, though she'll not assuage us herself from her nights and roads, refuting sleep with ghosts. I saw my father once or twice a year throughout my childhood. I have now not seen him since 1997. I consider it his loss more than mine. I cannot speak for my two sisters, his other two children, and their feelings about his mostly absence from our childhoods. Perhaps they feel different. We had many women, though, mostly Dakota and some maid kin, to care for us and instruct us, although they weren't always hands-on. We learned a lot by their example and occasional firm corrections. But our father was an interesting character, and I'm grateful for that. He was a trucker and did not have a permanent residence half the time. My dad was a bit of a stereotype, which makes for a great story. Maybe it's the U.S. American stereotype of wheels to the road that I inherited. It's laughable, but when I saw that um, Burt Reynolds film, Smokey and the Bandit, when I was 10 years old, Jerry Reed's trucker character Cletus, or Snowman, reminded me so much of my father. He looked and sounded too a bit like my dad, just more Southern. This was in the days of CB radio-themed t-shirts and paraphernalia, and my dad knew all the trucker lingo. It's hilarious to remember how impressed we kids were when we heard him use that vernacular on his CB. But unlike Cletus, my dad did not go home to his wife and children in the country at the end of his long hauls. Nor would my mother have been there in rollers waiting on the front porch to meet him, if he did come home. She did wear rollers, but she didn't wait at home on my dad. I suppose it's hard to be married when two bodies crisscross the continent in different directions, middle to east to west to north and south, back to middle again. My parents separated when I was three years old. My next youngest sister was two years old, and my youngest sister was not yet known to be on the way. After that, like before, I often found safe and calm shelter in the quiet, clean, small-town houses of my native grandmothers. Like my dad, we only saw his side of the family once or twice a year, although his parents only lived 20 miles away near another small South Dakota farming town. They were culturally odd to me. 
German-American farm people who cooked good country food, drank a lot of cheap beer straight out of cans, drove their cars and tractors for decades, and went to Lutheran church. My grandmother on that side was the Saturday afternoon cleaning lady at the Corn Exchange Bank. My parents migrated for many of the same reasons I have, to make a living and I think for an irrepressible desire to see what was down the road the next hundred miles, what opportunities were in the next state or city and to run from what had been difficult in their respective childhoods. And yet both of them kept coming home to that place of trauma and beauty. At the cusp of the 21st century and more middle class than my parents had been, I was propelled by jet fuel across continents that scrolled by as the earth turned below. As I crossed time zones, the land would darken and the moon rise above. 11,000 meters below, glittering electric grids came alive. Oceans turned to black. In abyss, to eyes that learned to see across great, sun-saturated skies and prairies. To me, ocean depths are incomprehensible and terrifying. I would turn my face back to the interior of the plain, into our vessel in the sky, toward the narrow, safe, finite space, to low lights and coffee, back toward our truncated clock. I would close my eyes and push the sea below from my mind. I would think of a smooth touchdown on the runway. I would think of deplaning into yet another sunny terminal somewhere in the world, of the customs counters and being waved through after a stamp in my passport, yes, more often than not, without incident. I would think of getting into yet another taxi, of the different languages, of speeding down highways and back streets in another country, another city. And here's another poem inserted into the text called A Nomad's Sleep. North American plain, stark in the sun, the wheat color blinds like snow. Two sisters embrace under white breath screams a hectic sky. This day, one is leaving. Closed in the dark rib cage of a plane, she shoots over Shannon, Tehran, toward Delhi, to a hasten sunset, sudden morning. In the nomad's comfort of flight and disorientation, she sleeps between stars and lights dotting earth, seven black miles beneath her. She dreams, running the circle of the dance grounds. Dancers come in, gray-haired women, old men speed past. Don't get in their way as they dance in like grand entry. The circle elongates to the size and brightness of Dakota fields. Run, run, they are close behind. In mouth, runner's spit thickens, reaching in to pull the sinews out like the spider's sticky thread. Mouth water beads in black, white, and red. Filling cheeks, spitting handfuls, can't get all the beads out, can't get out of their way. Old people dance slow, run fast. They are close. In the sky of India, the nomad wakes certain. 
flights in her story. The story predictably tethers her. By July 2001, I had circled the earth many times. I took longer routes than did my parents who migrated in circles from South Dakota to the three coasts of the U.S. and home again. Yet I doubt I covered more actual miles than they did. Tens of thousands of miles of pavement had turned beneath their wheels like the globe had turned beneath my jets aloft. After having wanted so fiercely to leave when I was a teenager, I came home two decades later to rest in that countryside. I learned living away how the land and its rivers and skies had formed me. I learned that my eyes crave wide-open spaces. I had felt jostled about and suffocated in between mountains and hills in Colorado where I had lived for a few years in the 1990s. I would grow to feel that way too during the next decade I spent in California. But in 2001 I was home and my nose wanted to breathe deeply the scent of prairie earth risen on rain. I learned to walk and run upon the glacier scraped flatness. With all of that travel I just needed to stand at the bottom of a deep sunny prairie sky. In retrospect, coming home in the summer of 2001 began my disentangling of the U.S. from the lands it claims. From my first memories as a small child, I had pictures in my head of our ancestors on lands now occupied by the U.S. In addition to the history my Dakota family imparted daily, we also had many social relations with Anishinaabe people in Minnesota and attended their cultural events. I also read and knew their stories. So I understood, even as a child, more than a little about Dakota and other indigenous societies that thrived on that ground before settler occupation and statehood. I had never totally absorbed the terra nullius mythologies that U.S. Empire likes to peddle about its supposedly benevolent origins. As a teenager, I'd read Dakota history in books. I'd read about the starvation of our ancestors, the execution sanctioned by the pen of Abraham Lincoln, and the imprisonment and forcible relocations of Dakota people from ancestral homelands. I understood the basic details of the theft of our ancestors' lands and waters to build the state of Minnesota. I understood how Dakota ancestors' bones were stolen like the land. But I didn't only learn these things in books largely written by white men. Before I could read, I was already learning this history at home from family who recited names, places, events, and dates. You can watch a 56-minute PBS film, Dakota Conflict, on this history. You will hear early on in this 1993 film, Dakota language that is medicine to my ears. I haven't watched the entire film in a while, so I can't remember what I think of its analysis. You can also view a more recent 2013 two-hour PBS film, The Past is Alive Within Us, the U.S.-Dakota Conflict, on the same topic. This more recent film has interviews with Dakota community members, including some of my family, knowledge keepers, and Dakota historians, whereas the 1993 film only has a Dakota narrator. The 2013 film will give you a sense of the stories I heard as a child. But unlike with the historical narration I heard from my mother and other family members, this PBS film features too prominently a politics of reconciliation 
and a not very subtle appeal to American multiculturalism, which is an analysis I object to. This history is not best understood through an American quote-unquote multicultural lens. Historical and moral clarity are attained by considering the events through an anti-colonial and now anti-imperialist lens. Dakota ancestors were not American, but rather enemies of the U.S. state and peoples whose lands were being invaded by a would-be occupying power, and yet this part of Dakota history is also U.S. history, and it is the U.S. present. As I've said a lot during the last few years, what the U.S. did to secure the land it occupies, it will do to retain it. We are not, quote-unquote, at home or abroad, immune from U.S. savagery that infuses all of its governing structures. Dakota history can help people today understand what is unfolding now. Another poem, Between Nations. And if you can hear all the street noise, that noise is fitting background for this uh, next poem. Again, Between Nations. This is the nation of islands that heaps itself in red under teeth-bared monuments of war. It is green with luscious trees. And in the markets, where fat rats drag tails between the crates packed across water-worn stones. Water is heavy, sludges through like syrup, pulling close clay-roofed houses, squeezed and leaning into it. Soot fumes of trucks and hacking motorbikes lick back the fat-tongued air. The transition is not poetic. In this country is seen red flags and fists. I hear of machete stories and scythes they use among themselves. I just massacre a language. Am confused by another nation. Cannot discern the words of poets rising in these pregnant hothouse islands. In 2001, when I first came quietly to Oak Lake after several tumultuous years abroad, including living in Indonesia when the 30-year dictatorship of Suharto fell, I was beginning to form a more global analysis of the place of Wiyocheti Shakowin in the world. Although, although I grew up in a Dakota family inside of Dakota homelands, I did not totally escape indoctrination by settler mythologies that conflate the stunning windswept lands of home with settler state flags and borders that naturalize U.S. occupation. Like many citizens, I internalized out-of-European-place renamings of our lands and waters. How could I not? Dakota language was forbidden and punished. My ancestors were shamed for it. Our history was quickly silenced or whitewashed for white amnesiac consumption. I was fed linear time mythologies of inevitable progress that enable the U.S. and its citizens to disown their complicity in ongoing indigenous dispossession. Further naturalizing settler land seizure was the ugliness of their hard 90-degree angles, projected onto the earth and erected above it, their county and state boundaries, their townships and fields, their houses and signs are all 90-degree angles, as opposed to the winding rivers 
rounded bountiful clouds and paintbrush strokes of color and light in the prairies of home. At the end of a long journey, first zipping across the Java Sea, over the South China Sea, then across the Pacific, I finally descended through high clouds into that steamy North American prairie July. The air of home felt not too different from West Java. I can feel its stickiness and I can hear the crickets consorting as I write. When finally I came to rest in the lodge next to Oak Lake, I met Lydia Whirlwind Soldier. Remember what I wrote earlier that she said, our culture is the best culture? Again, why did she say this to me? Was it her welcoming me and welcoming me back home? Was it an admonition for a now global soul who might be by this time disconnected from Dakota homelands? In Java, I learned many things on a steep incline. I heard and deciphered spirit stories even with my low Indonesian language proficiency, even though I am not Muslim nor Catholic and could not speak the languages Javanese, Sundanese, or Dutch of the spirits I was told populated the land. After emerging from a nine-month-long painful culture shock, I became, pro became, <laughs> became profoundly moved by the volcanic and tropical lands of Java and by the violent midday rainy season thunderstorms that recalled prairie summer storms. I grew to love the ancient, delicate sound of the gamelan, to appreciate the lizards, large and small, who scurried up and across the walls of my house and chattered throughout those hot equator days. I admired all of the visual beauty on Java, the intricately designed textiles, teak carvings and painted renditions of powerful gods. I was an absolute outsider there, too big and gemuk. <laughs> Look that one up, as Indonesians would often inform me. I spoke Bahasa Ingres, English. I barely understood ways of being on Java. Of course, I would never romanticize the land or its people. The history there is also hard and painful, like in all of our lands. But from my ethnocentric Dakota standpoint, I came to understand a bit and respect very much their love for their beautiful land and cultures. I may not have fully understood Lydia Whirlwind Soldier that July evening, but I have come to understand in the two decades since what I think she meant, and it was a very Lakota and Dakota idea, that our culture is best for us and best for our homelands because our culture arose there in concert with all of the relatives of those places, human, not human, material, spirit, land, water, and those who lodge in theatrical prairie skies. People who came newly into our homelands could have co-constituted themselves there too, and with us to some degree. It was not a foregone conclusion that they needed to seize most of the material resources, including not only land and the energy and life beneath it, but the bones, blood, and molecules in our human bodies for study. Finally, many who don't largely ignore our aliveness attempt to stand in for it. They claim to be us. It was also not a foregone conclusion that newcomers imposed their bloody and amputated structures from lands across the Atlantic. It was not destined that they should replace our ancestors' governing structures and ways of being. That is a lie of white supremacist cultural evolutionary thinking. 
other newcomers before had made kin with our ancestors. Though remember, kin do not always get along so merrily. Still, fighting kin is different than invade and replace settler supremacy. Disagreeable kin can still inhabit a common worldview. I close with a very short piece, Wakpa, from Lydia Whirlwind Soldier's newest book, Survival Songs. There are many longer pieces in this book that I love and could quote, but I don't want to give too much away from her book. You can purchase it here. I'll put links in uh, the podcast notes to read many more of Lydia's Lakota survival songs. She says there is no word for poetry in Lakota, only a word for song. The book was published and is sold by our friend Craig Howe's organization, the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies. That organization does a lot of Lakota studies work throughout South Dakota and beyond. You can listen to Lydia talk about survival songs and her approach to writing grounded in Lakota culture and worldview on hashtag Native Reads, episode 10, Memory Songs with Lydia Whirlwind Soldier of the Red Nation podcast. Thank you for, re- for reading and listening in this case. And here is Wakpa. It is very short. If this land has a soul, it is in the river. It did not turn against those who came to civilize it. And that was by Lydia Whirlwind Soldier. I will um, put show notes up as well, but the poems that I have recited were published uh, in South Dakota Review in spring of 2000 in the uh, Gatherings uh, Enochian Journal of First North American Peoples, published in fall 2001. Uh, There were two PBS documentaries I will put notes in about. And then, uh, again, Lydia Whirlwind Soldier's newest book is Survival Songs, published uh, by Cairns, C-A-R-N-S Press, 2020. And you can purchase that book on the uh, cairns.org Uh, website. Thanks for listening.